We've been studying the Gospel of Matthew this fall. It's the first book of the New Testament. You know, the Bible's a big book. I don't know where you are in reading through all 66 books of the Bible. But the way we usually split the Bible and understand it is Old and New Testaments. Well, Matthew falls right in the middle. And so in many ways, it is a hinge book that helps us understand the whole thing. If you're just joining us, I encourage you to get a, a copy of God's Word. I'm really pushing these, these uh, old um, uh, kind of things that some people still have called books. Um, so get yourself a copy, a physical copy of God's Word. Mako, back at the book table, loves to help people order Bibles, so go see him. I encourage you to get one of those. Uh, bring a pencil to our times. We're, we're walking through Matthew's Gospel in consecutive fashion. Uh, I will endeavor to leave nothing out. Now, occasionally I come across verses that I don't know what to do with. Uh, we'll endeavor to make it all the way through to Matthew 28, sometime, Lord willing, before Jesus returns. Uh, you may, if you are new with us, find it surprising to think that, that we think the most up-to-date, relevant, cutting-edge document or idea or plan in Shanghai right now is a 2,000-year-old. Document. That's what we're studying here in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, what we've seen so far is that the mission of God, the salvation history that he has planned from eternity past, is unfolding. The plan to redeem mankind lost in sin. And we're moving towards the climax in Matthew's Gospel at the end. First, we've seen the coming of the Messiah, the promised Savior, who we're told in Matthew 1 is God with us. We then see him speaking with authority as we studied through the Sermon on the Mount, that famous sermon that he gave. And then we saw his deeds that were also filled with authority as he healed and cast out demons in Matthew 8 and 9. Well, here we come to this pivotal text in Matthew 10, where the problem of how limited Jesus is as one man, we see that he intends to solve by multiplying the laborers. That he intends to send out his disciples to be his very hands and feet and mouth. And so we, we looked at Matthew 10 verses 1 through 5 uh, last week. We talked about the fact that uh, though we can consider missionaries as sent in a, a special way, and pastors have a special role to shepherd God's church, nevertheless, every single Christian should see themselves as sent by God, that it's part of our very identity. He's called every one of us who is a Christian in this room this morning to himself, and then he's gifted us, and then he's sent us on a mission. That's the identity that we are all to have. It's intrinsic to the meaning of discipleship. So here we are, uh, come now to what is known as Jesus' missionary discourse, the, the instructions, the sermon that he gave to these that he is preparing to send out. Now, I was thinking that as we go through life, we're kind of used to speeches being given to us. Have you had a speech given to you recently? Uh, and this may happen at the beginning of a school year. I know that some of us are just starting out. Um, if, you're, if you're in a class of some kind, did your teacher give some sort of a speech kind of in the first class to, to set the tone? 
Or maybe some of you are actually principals of schools. I wonder if you gathered together either your teachers or the whole school and kind of gave a speech. Okay, this is what this year is going to be like. Uh, in the Collins Academy, uh, which happens in my home, it only has uh, uh, four students in it. My, my wife homeschools our kids. She actually called me as the principal of Collins Academy to give such a speech this past week. Um, you know, to set the tone. And as, as best I understood the speech that she wanted me to give, it was something like this. Put the fear of the living God into them. I think that was the basic uh, thing that she wanted me to communicate to them at the start of the year. I don't know, Alex, or other principals we have here. Teachers are wanting you to do something similar with your students. Um, You know, it happens in the workplace, too. At the start of some new project or or some new season of work, your, your boss may call you in, and he wants to say, okay, here are the instructions that you need to know. And I think he's, he or she is probably hoping to inspire you to work really hard on this new project. Now, that may or may not be the case that you are inspired. You may yawn when such speeches are given. Sometimes, in times of great national emergency, we, we look to the leaders of whatever country we're living in to, to give a, a speech. We, we may be in a time of natural disaster or of war, are especially ready to tune in and hear the leader of the country uh, give a speech that will give us perspective and tell us what's next. I, I was remembering just um, 9-11 is kind of the, the, the speech uh, that, that I remember. Um, I was living very close to the Pentagon where one of the planes hit on 9-11. We could actually hear the explosion and uh, went through that entire day just kind of in chaos. Listening to the news, had no idea what was going on. So when the president came on to give a speech, we, we were all tuned in like, Tell us what, what to think and what to do. You know, whether it's small things or great things, we're, we're used to these kind of speeches coming our way. My guess is that if you're like me, the degree to which you pay attention to those speeches kind of hinges on two factors. First, what's the moment? How significant is the moment that you find yourself in? And then secondly, who it is that's giving the speech? What kind of allegiance do you feel towards that person? So the moment and the person affect the way we come to the speech. Well, as we come to Matthew chapter 10, I want us to see first the moment is huge. I don't know that anybody would have known what was going on as this this Palestinian rabbi gathered around 12 people Maybe they wouldn't have thought that it was a big deal. But what was actually happening was a hinge in salvation history where God's plan to get his gospel to the nations was being set forth. And the person, the person is God himself. I I don't want you just to come to Matthew 10 and think, oh, this is really interesting to study something that happened way back then. Because as we'll see in Jesus' instructions, he he didn't just give them to the twelve. He meant, in some sense, to give them to all Christians in all times and all places who are to see themselves as sent out on his mission. So an incredible moment, an incredible person who is speaking. I think that we should lean in this morning and see what it is that he wants to say to us. So if you're taking notes, and I encourage you to do that, that, uh, we're going to look at three mission-critical priorities. Three mission-critical priorities. Three things that we've got to remember if we are to be on mission. Number one, remember the message. 
remember the message. Number two, remember the marks of the messengers. Remember the marks of the messengers. And number three, remember the master himself. Remember the master himself. As we did with the Sermon on the Mount, we'll take this sermon in chunks. Um, intend this morning to take us from verse 5 through verse 25. Uh, I'll go ahead and read that whole section. You may want to follow along in the bulletin or in your copy of God's Word. Matthew 10, verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet. And when you, when you leave that house or town, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? All right, so first we'll think about remembering the message. Uh, look again there at verses 5 and 6. Jesus sends out the twelve, and he tells them where to go. Their first mission is to go in Israel, to stay in Israel, and even not to go to the, the part of Israel called Samaria. He tells them to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So he's supposed to focus first on these people who are waiting for the Messiah to come. And this is a pattern that's important for us to see because it does tie Old and New Testament together. You'll remember in the spring as we looked at the promise that God gave to Abraham way back in Genesis 12, it was a promise to bless one ethnic people, the people of Israel. But ultimately, that blessing was to go to all the peoples of the earth. Do you remember that? 
I said last week, it's always dangerous to ask, do you remember that? But that's what we talked about. So the blessing on Israel is supposed to spread to all the nations. And what we're seeing here is God finishing his faithfulness, in a sense, to Israel before the Great Commission that will end Matthew's Gospel uh, spreads it out to all nations. Now, we, we've already seen in Matthew's Gospel, he, he's not going to wait till chapter 28 to, to show us that the, the mission is changing from just Israel to all the Gentiles. Uh, we saw the Roman centurion in, in Matthew 8. He came, you'll remember, with great faith. He said, Jesus, you don't even have to come to my house to heal this guy. And Jesus says, I haven't even found such faith in all of Israel. Jesus said there that many are going to come from the east and the west and sit down with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in the kingdom of heaven. So we've already seen that. That's already happening. But still, I just want us to see Jesus is first being faithful to the chosen people of Israel. The message that they are to preach is a simple one we're given here. Uh, It's the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, you may think to yourself, that's a pretty short message. I mean, are they just going to go around repeating that one sentence, the kingdom of heaven is at hand? How are you doing? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. I mean, is that all? I think we're supposed to understand that to be a summary of the message that they they would preach. I think they would have been explaining all that that means, that the kingdom of heaven has come in Jesus, what that means for you, ways that we can say, I think it would have been a longer message. It's a bit like some of you will will come up to me after a sermon, and and you'll say something like this, "Uh, Mark, I really understand what you were trying to preach today. No matter how people treat us, we should love them. And I'll think to myself, you know, it took me a whole week to prepare a sermon and a whole hour to preach it, but you got it. It's one sentence. That's it. That's the summary. It can be a little bit discouraging in some ways, but... But I think that's what we have here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the summary of the message. Uh, what does that word at hand refer to? It's just one, one word in Greek. Uh, it, it refers to something being imminent. It's something that's drawn near. So if you're, if you're a student, kind of got, got students on the brain this morning, uh, you, your, your, your math teacher might say, the math test is at hand. I don't know if you would say that, but it means we're about to take a math test, right? So the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's communicating something is we're right on the cusp of it. We're right on the dawn of it. And that should affect the way you think and live. Paul uses that that word at hand in Romans 13. He says, the night is far spent and the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. You see what he's doing? He's trying to tell them because things are imminent that God is doing, you should change the way that you live. So so that's what they're to preach. Uh, Diligent students of Matthew's gospel will recognize that that's the same message that John the Baptist went around preaching, Matthew 3, verse 2. It's the same message that Jesus started traveling around and preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now is the time. Now is the time for this kingdom of heaven. Now, that phrase kingdom of heaven is very important. We've talked about it before. It refers to the rule and reign of God. It's not thinking about a geographic kingdom 
We often, we might describe, there's some, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, there's still some kingdoms on earth, but we're not thinking about a geographic thing here. The kingdom of heaven is the rule and reign of God as it begins to be lived out by his people, by his disciples. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, your response to Jesus, were you to repent of your sins and trust in him for salvation, you would be entering the kingdom. Uh, We would not issue to you a new passport. You can keep a passport from whatever country you come from. Uh, What we would do instead is baptize you. That baptism and entrance into the church would be like your passport. You've come into the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's not all the kingdom of heaven means. You you might rightly think to yourself, well, if this is the kingdom of heaven, it's not a very perfect place, and you'd be right. We're waiting the full consummation of the kingdom of heaven, which will happen when Jesus returns and makes all things new, sets all things right. He'll do away with sin and death and pain and sorrow, and he will make his kingdom complete and perfect. Now, the the full meaning of that reconciliation with God is something that we can understand a little bit better than the disciples here. You know, they were going around preaching without the completed New Testament. This is even before Jesus died on the cross. Uh, But we share great commonality with them in understanding that we live in this time period when the kingdom of heaven is available to any who will respond. We're just like them in that respect. And I think it's crucial for us to not lose sight of that. That might not seem like a big deal to you, but living in this time, it sets the mission for us. I've lived in Shanghai for about 15 years. I don't, know, I don't really know anything about business, but I've known a lot of businessmen in Shanghai. And I like learning about business, kind of asking questions about what they do. One of the things that I hear businessmen often talking about is needing to know what time period you're, you're in as it relates to some industry or some product that you're trying to sell. So, so being early to market, uh, that is, can be a dangerous thing because the, the, um, the people might not be ready for the product that you're trying to sell. It also is a problem if you're late to market because if there's too many people in the game selling something, it might be too late for you to get a piece. So you have to know when you're doing business where you are in the time frame. Well, that's kind of what I'm saying to us. We need to know when we live. And the time when we live, you and I, is the time when the kingdom of heaven is available to any, and therefore it must be proclaimed to as many as possible. I hope you can see how that sets the mission for us. It should affect the way you and I go into this next week We should be actively thinking to ourselves, how can we make this availability of the kingdom known to the people around us? Now, that might be a very simple thing. It might just mean uh, telling people, first and foremost, that you're a Christian and that you'd like to talk to them about that if they're willing. It might mean being willing to invite people to come to church. We'll set up more chairs. Trust me. Bring them here. It might mean thinking, over time, how can I build a relationship with this person to earn a hearing for the gospel? Sometimes people are only willing to listen to us to the extent that we invest in relationship with them. So what I'm saying is that those should be active thoughts for us. 
as we think about our life and our mission. Some people feel, it's, it's funny to me that some people in this age of marketing uh, feel a little weird about that idea that we would befriend somebody so that we could earn a hearing for the gospel. It, it, you know, everybody in Shanghai is pushing their product, right? Well, what we have is something that won't cost people, and there's nothing better for them. So I've got no problem kind of saying, okay, we've got an agenda. It's just an agenda to communicate with you the best news that you could ever hear. I think one of the applications for us as a church, just thinking about this, this first point, uh, that we need to remember the message, is that we've got to beware of mission drift. I don't really think I'm saying anything surprising to you, but I do think that we are ever in danger of mission drift. Do you, do you know that, that phrase that's used for organizations or, or companies that start off, and part of what makes them su- successful initially is just a laser focus on what it is that they're about and what they're doing. But over time, you can get distracted from that mission by lots of good things. So I can think of churches that I know in America that, that in an early phase where they were kind of planted and growing, they were all about the mission of making the gospel known. And even if they did things in the community, uh, the good things to, to reach out and, and just help people practically in the community, that was always connected to a goal to also communicate to them the good news of the gospel. Over time, some of those churches have moved to a place of having a mission that's something more like, we just want to make our community a better place. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with wanting to make your community a better place. I think loving our neighbor puts that onus on us. But I do think that that's not the mission of the church. Our mission, ultimately, is to communicate a message and to make as many disciples as we can. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian... Let me just emphasize again to you that this is not a closed club of any kind. Jesus meant to communicate to people who are on the outside a welcome that they can come to the inside. The only qualification for you is to acknowledge your separation from God and the reality of your sin. If you can acknowledge that, and then you can see in Jesus Christ God's provision for that problem of your sin, and that what he did on the cross is a payment for your sin, if you will believe in Jesus and what he did, then you will be reconciled to God and you are welcome to come on the inside. That's a message that we mean to proclaim. So that's our first mission critical priority, to remember the message. Uh, Let's think about a second priority that comes from this passage. That's that we need to remember the marks of the messengers. So we're thinking here about what kind of messengers we're supposed to be as sent out by Jesus. Uh, Remember, as we've said, that this is a one-time event, so we're not the twelve. There are some specifics of things that they were sent out to do that are not going to apply directly to us, but we're going to look for some principles that do apply. What things are supposed to characterize the sent-out messengers of Jesus? Four things. Four marks of the messengers. Number one, compassion. Look at verse 8 there. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. 
The disciples' ministry was an extension of Jesus' ministry. They were to go and do the same things that Jesus did. Now, as we said last week, I think that that power to heal with a word and a touch is something that was given uniquely to the apostles. Uh, I don't think that we have that same power. As we see in the New Testament, if we respond to someone who's, who's sick, uh, we're told to pray for that person. And God may, through our prayers, heal them. We don't have the same power in the same way that they do. But I think the principle of compassion remains the same. Remember, as Jesus moved through Galilee, each individual person with need was a person that he cared about. He did things that shocked people, like laying hands on a leprous person, putting himself at risk of getting that skin disease. Well, the disciples, as they go out, are to carry that same compassion for each one with them. So it's a good question to ask ourselves. Are we caring for each person that we come across? Are we a person care? Are we a people characterized by compassion? We can think about that, as I've mentioned, just in terms of the friendship that we extend to people. We should be the, the ones who are regularly inviting people to our home, inviting people to meet up for a meal, asking people how they are doing seeing if there are ways that we can meet practical needs in their lives. How many of us are here because someone showed us that kind of compassion? So that's the first mark of the messengers, compassion. There's a second mark we see here, and that's that they trust God for provision. This is verses 8b through 11. The disciples were supposed to minister to others without expecting anything in return. So look at some of those things. He, he says that they're not supposed to take money in their belt. So that's where you would have kind of, kind of stored coins in that day. They were not supposed to take a bag for their journey. Uh, one tunic was supposed to be enough for them. Although in a cold night, you can see when you might not have blankets and not know where you're going to stay, a second tunic would be the kind of thing that you could use from a beta, a blanket. Uh, they're not supposed to take sandals, staff, uh, basically, he's sending them out with what's on their possession, and he's asking them to trust that wherever they get to, somebody's going to both feed them and clothe them. I don't think that this means that when you're sending out a mission trip, it's, it's, you should not think through logistics, okay? So I think that would be a, an application of this to our situation that we're not supposed to make. But I do think that this idea that you trust God for provision is something that certainly Christian missionaries, uh, Christian ministers of all kinds, and then all Christians should be characterized by. Why? Because we know that our Heavenly Father is going to take care of us. We go oftentimes to Romans 8 to remember those verses that say, He who has given us all things in Christ, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If you can trust God for the greater, you can trust him for the lesser. They were to throw themselves on God for all that they need. We should just ask ourselves, do you trust God to provide for your practical needs? There's a second aspect here, I think, of their trust. It's that they were not to minister to others trying to gain for them. He said, freely they have received, freely they should give. I think that this is a rebuke to those who would build Christian ministries out of a desire for personal gain. It's unfortunate that Christian history is littered with those kinds of ministries. 
So this is certainly a rebuke for that. But these verses have also been used to argue against having paid ministers. I think it's worth us taking a minute on that. Um, Though Jesus does restrict them here, the the Apostle Paul, it's interesting, he picks up a phrase out of this passage. Uh, It's a passage uh, that's also in Luke's Gospel. A little bit different there. Jesus here says the laborer deserves his food. In Luke, it's the laborer deserves his wages. And then Paul quotes this in 1 Timothy 5, saying that those who labor in preaching and teaching are worthy of double honor, meaning that they should be provided for by the church. I mention that because as a church plant, in in our budget, we're leaning over three years towards the point where we want to be able to fully support ourselves. We don't have to lean on other churches to provide for us, and we can be self-sufficient. But it's also important for those in Christian ministry to remember that we minister not for a paycheck. I do think that's something we should pull from this here. We are not professionals. Listen to the way D.A. Carson says it. When Christians accept money for ministry, they ought never to view it as a wage, but as a gift. The church does not pay its ministers. Rather, it provides them with resources so that they are able to serve freely. And he's taking that from what Jesus says here. Freely we have received. Freely we should give. So I think all of us should check our trust level this morning. The God who has provided salvation through Jesus Christ, do you trust him to provide for your future material needs? Is there anxiety this morning that you need to turn away from? It's the second mark of the messenger. They trust God to provide for them. There's a third mark of the messengers. They're in verse 16. That's that they should be shrewdly innocent or innocently shrewd. Verse 16, he says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. That word wise there also translated as shrewd sometimes or prudent It means to give thought to your ways. So the Christian, as they are sent, is someone who should be thinking about what God has called them to do. So let me just give you an example. Christians should not be those trapped in silly arguments about minutia of the faith. Have you ever been trapped in a silly argument? We should be thinking about the kind of conversations that we get into. I took the bait maybe at least twice this summer. Uh, Somebody asked who I voted for in the last election, and I found myself in in an endless political conversation with someone that I wanted to talk to, to about Jesus. We need to be wise and careful. But we also need to be innocent as doves. We should be people who have integrity. That's what that word innocent, it literally means unmixed. It points to a purity of intentions. So in our dealings with other people, they should never feel tricked by us. They should never feel manipulated. And that combination of shrewdness and innocence is powerful in a person. Because it forces you not just to deal with them, but to deal with the message that they're giving to you. Beloved, there should not be anything in us that is an obstacle to people believing in Christ. 
Are there ways that you are living right now where your personal life and conduct don't commend the gospel that you are called to preach? We should be shrewdly innocent. Fourth and final mark of the messenger that we see here is that we should fear God and not man. You know, Jesus really levels with them here, doesn't he? Um, He speaks to them in the first section about the potential, verse 14, that there will be those who will not receive them or listen to their words. They're to shake off the dust from their feet. That indicates a, a separation from their unwillingness to believe, saying, I have nothing to do with you now. Warns of the judgment that will come on those people. It's interesting, verse 15 actually indicates that there are levels of judgment. We've talked about in the past that there are levels of reward in heaven. There are also levels of judgment. Jesus very soberly warns that it will be more bearable for some than others. And it seems that the message that they've heard puts them in greater jeopardy. But as he levels with his disciples about the kind of treatment they can expect from people in verse 17, beware of men, they will deliver you over to courts, flog you in their synagogues, and you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness. He makes a promise to them about the words that will be given them. But then he continues in verse 21, brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. I was just struck by how many different things Jesus says about people not liking them. You know, all of us want to be liked. It's kind of pointless for me to stand here and tell you that you shouldn't care what other people think of you. I mean, I can say that, and it's true insofar as it goes, but all of us care what other people think of us. And all of us want to be liked. Think about my own childhood is one long effort to try to get people to like me, often with not very much success. But look what he says here about what's going to happen. He says that the government is not going to like them. The government is going to arrest them, flog them, put them in prison. Some of them are going to be killed. You're not going to be liked by many in government. Then he says you're not going to be liked by many in your own family. It's excruciating to think about a father handing over a child or a child turning in their father. And yet in Christian history, many times that's been the case. But think about your own family. Well, I don't have to ask you to think about many of you here. There are people in your family who don't like your faith. And, and it colors the way that they treat you and the way that they think about you. So the government's not going to like you. Your own family's not going to like you. Well, is there anybody left? Well, he says there, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Well, that's pretty much a clean sweep. I don't think he means all people without exception. But that there, there are going to be people in every category and in every place that don't like you because of your Christian profession. So let's ask ourselves a question. Who would sign up for this? Who would hear what Jesus is saying in the initial instructions and say, sign me up, I'm still in? Well, it's only a person who fears God more than they fear man. It's only a person who wants to be liked, in that sense, more by God than by man. 
That's the only kind of person that is going to sign up for this. Beloved, the fear of man is a snare. That's what the Bible says. If you live your life making decisions, just trying to make people happy, you're going to lead a miserable life. And you can't live a faithful life. You're going to have to decide that you care first and foremost what God thinks, what pleases Him, what He's called you to do, and then you're going to have to find a way to start making decisions in that direction. There are going to be time periods where people hate you. Some of those people later will like you. But it won't be because you tried to get them to like you. You're going to have to be willing to put God first. Awe of Him, elevating your view of who He is, is going to have to sustain you and give you freedom from the fear of man. So four marks, I think, that we're given here. Compassion, trusting God for provision, being shrewdly innocent, and fearing God. There's a third and final mission critical priority for us in this passage, and it's that we remember the Master. We remember the Master himself. There's a question that immediately jumped off the page to me as I read through Matthew 10 this week. It's a question about a seeming contradiction. Because we started thinking about God's faithfulness to the Jewish people. He's making sure that the disciples go through every town of Israel. He doesn't want anybody not to hear that the Messiah has come in Israel. And he calls them the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so it just reminded me of the passage in John where where Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. The good shepherd is the one who leaves the 99 and goes after the one. He doesn't want anybody to be left out. Every one of his chosen people are going to be brought home. He's a good shepherd. But here's the contradiction. How can the good shepherd send sheep in among wolves? That's what it says in the same passage, right? Think for a minute about what wolves do to sheep. We we were listening to an audio book this summer, White Fang by Jack London. Wonderful book of literature. I think I was supposed to read it in high school, didn't read it then. We listened to it this summer. It's about a a half-dog, half-wolf who's who's raised first by wolves and then ends up having a, a human master at some point. But anyway, the whole first part of the book is how wolves love meat. And anything moving to a wolf is just meat to be eaten. Wonderfully encouraging. Meditate on that for a minute. How can Jesus be the good shepherd and send sheep to wolves? Well, here's a couple ways I think that we can think about that. First, consider that you and I are the fruit of the good shepherd's willingness to send some of his sheep among wolves. You and I are not here today if these 12 are not sent out. And if many more over the centuries of Christian history hadn't gone at great risk to their lives to take a message to people who didn't want to hear it. I mean, that's why we read missionary biographies, right? And if you're not reading biographies of great heroes of the faith from from church history, you're just missing out on an incredible blessing. But as you begin to read their stories, that's what you're going to see is that it's what had to happen if the message was going to come to more people. So people like Polycarp in the second century, 
was going to have to labor as a faithful pastor and then be brought up on charges of not worshiping the emperor of Rome. And he was going to have to be burned at the stake. His words ring through history. He says, 86 years have I served Jesus and he has done me no wrong. How then could I blaspheme my king and my savior? So they burned him at the stake. We think about the English Reformation and men like Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, faithful pastors burned at the stake by bloody Queen Mary of England. Latimer was heard shouting to Ridley through the flames, Take heart, Master Ridley, and play the man, for we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. We need old men like Polycarp and Ridley and Latimer to be willing to go like sheep among wolves. And then countless young men and women like John and Betty Stamm and Jonathan Goforth and Jim Elliott to lay their lives on the line so that you and I could be here today. So I'm glad he sent them. But I think that there's more that would commend Jesus as a good shepherd. Did you see those words that he gave to them? They would have been so precious as these uneducated fishermen think about going before the, the very powers that be in the Roman Empire. I, I picture them standing before trained lawyers who are taking them to task. And he says to them, what does he say? Don't worry, don't be anxious about what you're to speak or what you're to say, for it will be given to you in that hour. It's not you who speak but the spirit of your father speaking through. You know what he's saying to them? He's saying, I'm going to be right there with you every step of the way. Christian, you are never in hardship that Jesus is not there with you by his spirit. He gives you the words that you need. He gives you the comfort that you need because he's a good shepherd. I think there's a third and final and most important thing when Jesus says there, he who perseveres to the end will be saved, it's a reminder that whatever happens to us on this earth is only temporary. What we have awaiting us is eternity with our shepherd in a perfect place. And so even if he calls some of us to make the ultimate sacrifice for him and lay down our lives, we will find ourselves ushered into the very presence of God himself. So in spite of the fact that he sends them out like sheep among wolves, I think that we can see him as the good shepherd, and we can be encouraged. What did Job say? Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Perseverance will pay off in salvation. He is with me throughout, and he has gone before me. And maybe that's the last and final thing that we should remember, is that our master himself laid down his life for us, didn't he? He doesn't call us to do anything to any hardship that he hasn't first endured. He's able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he himself suffered and entrusted him himself to the master. So in your hardship this morning, remember Jesus. Remember what he went through for you. Remember him as the good shepherd. Don't doubt his presence or the salvation that lies before you. We have these mission-critical priorities from Jesus. Remember the message. Remember the marks of the messengers. Finally, remember the masters himself. As speeches go, I wonder if you'll remember this one. 
The moment is huge. The speaker is the Son of God himself. The hearers started with the twelve. Many millions have come after them in church history. They include us here this morning. He has a mission for us. Let's embrace it together. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful, perhaps most of all, for your presence that is with us as we go. I pray that you would encourage the faint-hearted this morning, that you would give us the strength that we need, and that you would embolden us for the mission that you've called us to in Shanghai. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.